Hello, and welcome to Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health, a podcast series all about meaningful dialogue and connections between humanities and medicine. This is episode three of season five. In this episode, we're joined by Professor Anne Whitehead from Newcastle University and Dr. Jennifer H. Peen from Stanford University. What you're about to hear is a conversation in front of a live audience between our guests and the two co-organisers of this project, Dr. Dieter de Klerk and Professor Ian Sabro. Dieter and Ian will talk with Anne and Jen about writing and about personal stories in the context of medical and health humanities. That's everything from me. Over to Anne, Jen, Dieter and Ian. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Conversations about Arts, Humanities and Health. I think this is probably the 22nd uh, live event that we've that we've done. And we're really happy that uh, Professor Anne Whitehead from Newcastle University and Dr. Jennifer H. Peen from Stanford University are here today, will join us in a conversation about writing and personal stories in the context of medical and health humanities. And we'll discuss on how she combined the personal and the critical in writing her recent monograph relating suicide, a personal and critical reflection. And this is just also a trigger warning that although we will not go into the sort of emotional dimensions of the topic suicide, we will talk about um, Anne's new book and how you combined the, the personal and the, and the critical in your new book. Anne. Um, and Jen, you know, we'll, you'll talk about your experiences of how care providers can integrate creative practices with healthcare and how such practices may support well-being. Over to you, Ian. As Dietrich said, although we're, we're talking about sensitive subjects, we're going to try very hard to keep that within a, a comfortable academic discipline. But if any of this becomes uncomfortable, please just find yourself something else to do. Uh, just for anybody who's ever struggling with their mental health, you're never alone. So many of us do. One in four of us in our lifetime will have significant issues with our mental health. And never forget that there's help out there from your employing organisations, from the Samaritans, from mental health charities, um, uh, from your friends, from your primary care physicians and so forth. Um, it's a huge pleasure to welcome two friends who I'm I'm, I'm honoured to know and call friends. Uh, I'll start with Jen, who I met in California in 2019. I was inspired and awed by her work setting up and being uh, being involved with now leading the Pegasus Writing Programme. So you'll have seen she's a clinical assistant professor at Stanford in the Department of Psychiatry, an awesome position in and of itself. But she's also now currently director of Pegasus Physician Writers, which is an organisation um, which on its website calls, it says, a membership of physician authors dedicated to medical humanities and creative writing to educate medical students and trainees, celebrate the lives of patients, impact public discourse and promote humanistic values in medicine, which is a wonderful set of aims and objectives and hearing how this comes about and uh, works in practice will be part of our conversation. I'm pleased to say also that her first novel is uh, is due out soon, The Sea of Souls, and we're, she may tell us a bit more about that as we go through. Uh, alongside Professor Anne Whitehead, Professor of Modern and Contemporary Literature at Newcastle, I first came across Anne at a workshop for one of the landmark texts in medical humanities, the Edinburgh Companion to the Critical Medical Humanities, edited by Anne Whitehood and another friend of the podcast, Angela Woods. And her latest book is an astonishing read and a wonderful read, and um, I can't recommend it enough. Relating suicide, a personal and critical perspective for an extraordinary, erudite bringing together of the personal, the academic, the theory, 
and and lived experience, which is, I think, where we'll be, be going today. Um, so welcome to you both. Everybody will be very pleased I'll stop wittering now. Uh, but our traditional first question is tell us about your connection to our theme, which is your chance to say what's on your hearts for today and a bit about yourselves. And shall we start with Anne? So I'll talk first about my connection to medical humanities as a field. So I've been working in the field for about seven or eight years. And as Ian mentioned, really, I think my entry point, I was very privileged and lucky to work with the team at Durham, with with Jane McNaughton and with Sarah editing the Edinburgh Companion and meeting such wonderful people as contributors, including Ian. I started off thinking about questions of empathy, you know, as a sort of critical term that was very central to the field and just thinking about that term. Then more recently, I suppose I've always meant to write a book on suicide and on particularly my sister's death. And so over 20 years ago now, she uh, she died by suicide. And I'd kind of, I'd worked on trauma, I'd worked on memory, I'd worked on medical humanities, and it was starting to feel a bit like the elephant in the room, um, for me at least, if not for anyone else. I decided it was time to, to write the book. Then the problem became how do I write the book? And it was really a question of form and of voice. And I'll talk a bit more about that as the, you know, the session goes on. But I think that question of form became very central, really. I knew what I knew what I wanted to write, but I was really not sure how I was going to write it, which was really that question which is central to this session, which is how do you combine the personal with the academic writing? I'm very comfortable with the academic writing, not very comfortable with the personal. And it was how I found a way for me to pull these two things together. Oh, thank you. Jen, do you want to introduce yourself and then we'll come back to that first great question? Absolutely. Well, it's such an honor to be here with you, Ian and Dieter, and especially in conversation with Anne. I'm so looking forward to this. I with my kind of hope to be able to squirrel Anne away somewhere and be able to pick her brain. So this is kind of a very fun opportunity to do so. So I think my connection to medical humanities probably started through probably several years ago when I was feeling a little burnt out myself through clinical work. I've been a little peripatetic in my clinical work with the emphasis moving from addiction to uh, adults with developmental disabilities. Uh, it's my running joke that I wanted to sample all the institutions in the in the 25 mile parameter of where I am. And so at that point, I kind of felt a little burnt out, a little intellectually stagnated, but it was very difficult for me because it was in a huge conflict with my values. I was still working with a, a population that I felt very meaningfully connected to. That was something that was very strongly held belief for me to advocate for marginalized and very vulnerable populations. So it was a very strange sort of um, unsettling experience. I thought I'd have to look sort of outside of medicine to find that deeper engagement. I happened to take a poetry class and unfortunately, unbeknownst to me, I didn't read the fine print and I thought it was a poetry appreciation class turned out to be a poetry making class, as many people would have it, right? I floundered. It was disastrous. Words sort of just poured out and incoherently, but I was bitten by the bug at that point. And I said, oh, you know, I'd love to be able to sort of incorporate more creative writing into my life. And it was then that I stumbled upon Pegasus. 
And another sort of bug hit me where I realized it was in this community of like-minded physicians and medical learner writers that I was able to see not only did I like the community of writing and how much it sort of integrated with my personal life, but I loved that I was getting a sense that it was integrating more with my professional life as well. And and the idea of sort of mentoring other people also was just really wonderful uh, to be able to, in the the trials and tribulations of publishing, I think are well known to many people. And um, even with a lot of resources, it can still be very daunting. So being able to share that with others and commiserate with them and help others along that path has been very gratifying. And so through that, then I said, well, I wonder if there's any sort of funding related to this intersection of uh, medical humanities and sort of mental health and well-being. And I spoke with my now uh, boss, Nikki Truckle, who's director of WellConnect, which is our, and we'll, I can talk about that a little bit later more, uh, director of our physician well-being program here at Stanford. And he says, no, but we do have clinical work that's very necessary and relevant. And so I think that's where things started to converge for me. This intersection of creating a place for others to enjoy creative practices, whether it's in their professional lives or their personal, and being able to support others. I think that's my place and what I love doing. And that's sort of my little niche within medical humanities. Oh, thank you so much. So, I mean, should we start with with this first great question, which is what we wanted to explore, which is, I think we're going to be talking about how you bring the personal into creative writing, how you bring the personal into academic writing, and to what extent those are the same and different and how you bring creativity into academic writing. My challenge to myself really was I didn't feel I could write about the topic without bringing the personal in because that felt kind of dishonest and somehow as if I would be sort of setting it up as something that was not, you know, that was a subject of study, whereas actually, you know, it was profoundly related to my own experience. So it felt like that had to be registered within the book and within the writing, I would say, first off, it was really scary to take the personal out. And that is what academic writing, you know, conventionally does. It is a real challenge when you're trained in that way to then move away from that and kind of bring the personal into that kind of writing space. And just listening to Jen just then, it reminded me also, you're also bringing it into your professional identity. And, you know, there's something there as well that feels very vulnerable, kind of like you're exposing yourself in certain ways. The approach that I took, first of all, I think one thing to to say and to register is that the book as it currently is published has a ghost book. And so I wrote a whole book before I wrote this book. It was the same length. So the thought was always 45,000 words. But I sort of I went further over towards the creative in my first iteration of it and wrote the book and got feedback on it from very generous you know readers and realized that that was not the right route for me that it wasn't my strengths it wasn't really what I wanted to say or do I just started again so you know there's nothing really that carries over from that first book to the second but really it was about okay so if I am bringing this into conversation then with my professional self with my academic self, then how do I bring the personal in? I knew I didn't want to write a book that had sections that were personal and then sections that were critical and academic. I wanted them to be more more integrated than that. And so really, I came to the, the sense of it that what I was interested in doing 
was actually, in a sense, being creative with and through theory was one thing that I came to. And that actually there is a creativity in critical writing that I wanted to explore and kind of amplify and turn the volume up on a bit compared to my other critical writing. And then the second thing was thinking about the boundaries of the personal itself, which I put a huge amount of thought into and was thinking, what of the personal am I going to give to this? And I came to a rule of thumb for deciding what would go into the book. And the rule that I set myself was, would any particular thing that I was describing have an equivalent for anyone else who had experienced this kind of loss? It might not be the same for them, but they would have their own equivalent that they could bring in and think, yes, that the object for her that is particularly vexed in relation to this is is her sister's watch. What would that be for me? You know, what's that object that I have that um, I find difficult to get out of a box? You know, if something had I felt had an equivalent for other people, I would put it in. If I felt it was just my own experience, I would edit it. You know, it just wouldn't go into the writing. So as a way of describing how I thought about the personal, it was quite an impersonal personal in that sense, or stripped back personal, in the sense that it was a sort of opening for other people with the same experience to be able to bring their personal into conversation with what I was saying. Um, So it was less a self-exploration than almost using the personal as a provocation to myself and to others to be able to say, what would my equivalent to that be? And may I ask you, did that process, did that change how you approached the critical or did it alter or transform it or add to it in some way? Yes, it did. And I think in distinction from the other books that I've written, I found the process of writing the critical I knew what text I was going to write on. So I knew the text that would be in each chapter, but I didn't know until I wrote them exactly what I was going to say about those texts. And so that came through the writing. So the writing was much more organic than it normally is and much more fluid than it normally is for me. You know, I've I've normally got things more fixed down before I write. So there was something looser in the process that perhaps was about interweaving the personal through that then also loosened up the readings as well. Um, So I just, I really didn't know what they would look like until I'd done them. (laughs) There was something there that that was just loosened up, I think, and made perhaps a bit more creative. I have so many follow-up questions. (laughs) In in our previous brief conversation, we talked about sort of influences and sort of that ebb and flow would you be able to speak more about that? Like cert- if there were certain writers that kind of, that you used as a framework in being able to integrate the personal and the critical together? We were talking a bit about that form of the book. And although I said there was no carryover between the ghost book and the book, the one thing presence that, that runs through both of them very strongly is Virginia Woolf. The book in many ways is a very linear structure. So the first chapter is looking at the the immediate days around and after the death. Then the second chapter looks at the months after and particularly focusing on processes of inquest. The third chapter is looking at the years after and thinking about the question of a kind of ongoing process of grief. So in one sense, it's very linear. In another way, I think sort of rubbing against that 
is um, a sort of very ebbing and flowing structure. It sort of ebbs and flows into and out of the personal and critical. But I think there is also something there that is, you know, within the book that feels like a sort of uh, Virginia Woolf's, I don't know, her interest in a sort of ebb and flow of experience, which I think is very, for me, very much bound up with grief as well, that it is something that ebbs and flows. And that experience of loss is is a very similar to that. In terms of other influences, the other people, the critical voices in the book, who I keep coming back to are Sara Ahmed and Anne Spetkovich, whose work I just love. I just adore their work. I think there was something in their critical writing that was very enabling in terms of it being very beautiful, being itself very poised between the creative and the critical. So I was using their ideas. You know, I think they helped me to think about what that voice might look like, you know, in terms of the way that they also are very rightly, you know, sort of critical voices. One thing I'd be really interested to ask you both um, is, is to what extent you're using writing as a sense-making tool to re-understand your own world. I was thinking about this, especially in reflection to Anne. I do think that very much I, I resonated so deeply with Anne's work, that sense of sort of that the personal uh, woven into the critical. And I was thinking, well, what is my approach to it? And as Ian had mentioned, I in the process of this manuscript in fiction about sort of Inuit mythology and sort of the origin story of a sea goddess and sort of the ramifications looking at that through which sort of the colonial assimilation practices uh, in the Canadian history, as well as sort of maternal and child relationships in the context of intergenerational trauma. But these are things that are not from a very personal place for myself. But then I thought, what is the personal connection? I think it is, and the thing that sort of ties in our entire conversation is sort of the curiosity aspect of medical humanities that allows us to make even things that we, that we may not have a direct connection to, but with the curiosity can deepen our engagement to it. And I think that's sort of where the personal sense-making comes in for me in terms of the writing, as well as sort of threads of what I do psychiatrically, uh, being with individuals uh, one-on-one, and then also with sort of the well-being as well as the medical humanities portions of it. Just being able to be curious, to have that sense of co-creation with another person, whether it's through writing and the reader and that co-creation of the imaginative realm, or if it's the co-creation of a psychotherapeutic session where you're exploring uh, relationships and uh, different aspects of the dimensions of people's lives together, or if it's in medical humanities, creating an array of potentially resources that allow another person to be captivated by their creativity and being able to sort of push that forward. So I think when it comes to the writing part, Specifically, I think that's where it resides for me, that you have a freedom to be able to explore these things with an openness that it can be, and you can find your way to the personal uh, through the writing, as, as Anne was talking about, making your way to it, or you can start off with a very, very specific understanding and insight. And both of those have combined in my, in my writing. In terms of sense-making and writing, going back to what I was just saying, there was more of a sense in writing this book, just the process of it, of feeling my way as I went along um, than I would normally have. I think the whole book is reflecting and asking that question, how do we make sense of loss? One of the ways that I was asking and probing that question was just thinking through particularly places and objects. And so I talk in the book about the places through which I have 
made sense of, failed to make sense of this experience. And I also talk about particular objects that are also kind of companions in the experience. Uh, I give quite a lot of weight to objects in the book, but are also things that help us to think and help us to process. And there's photographs in the book. So I took photographs of the objects um, and I was writing the book in lockdown on sabbatical. So it was a very kind of isolated experience. But in a sense, these objects became my companions in the writing of it. So I think it is a reflection on sense making and how we do make sense of things. It is then also about, you know, that kind of sense of the personal as a provocation rather than as, you know, the book was not me wanting to make sense of what had happened for myself so much as how do I make sense of this in relation to all of the academic work that I do and how do I bring it into conversation with that and in a sense make sense of that relation between those two things. The structure in terms of the chapters and the questions that the the chapters ask and don't ask came to me as I was writing and so the book is sort of moving away from the question why. I think why is a very important question to ask in relation to suicide. It's helps with prevention, but it almost is has it felt for me that it, it had almost become the only question that was asked. Thinking back to, you know, when this happened to me, the much more urgent questions, because you aren't there at the death, uh, the much more urgent questions for me were the much more tangible ones about how, where and when. And they were the ones I wanted the answers to. Even with those tangible questions, you don't fully get the answers. I just wanted to think about those questions as, you know, turn the volume up on those and turn the volume down on why. And that was also partly a way of bringing the body back in, because I think so much of suicide and the way we talk about it is about individual mental health. But I wanted to just sort of think when you lose someone very close to suicide, it's a very embodied experience, I think, I found anyway. And so I just wanted to think about what happens if we bring that body back in and what happens is it becomes very relational, I found, you know, which is partly about that title of relating suicide. It's it's partly about how we relate to it. It's partly about how we tell it, but it's also about it being something that goes beyond the individual in different ways and is either about the relation to objects or about the relation to um, how that event ripples out through other people and affects other people. So I just wanted to bring the body and relationality, you know, kind of front and centre in the conversation. I'd, I'd like to uh, bring in a question from, from the audience. And it's it's about, we were talking about Virginia Woolf as an influence, but are there also sort of theorists or, you know, work in academia that has been an inspiration for this, this work that combines the critical um, and the personal? Um, our question to you may or may not be familiar with auto theory or anecdotal theory by Gallup. Is that an inspiration or do you feel it's more relatable to how Eva Kitty is using the personal in her philosophical work? You may or may not be familiar with those, but I think the question is, is broadly about you know, perhaps sort of academic inspiration. I went through a phase where I was very troubled by what's the term to describe what I'm doing. And I got very vexed about all of that and read lots of work on auto theory and lots of work on 
how other people had done this thing. And particularly, it was just like, where does it fit and what do I call it? This thing that I want to do and, and that I think I'm doing. And in the end, I decided that I was going to put that down and actually, you know, not try to say this is auto theory or this is X or this is Y, but actually just sort of just do it. <laughs> in the first instance and stop worrying about the doing of it and just see what came out of it and and you know and let other people decide what it was rather than naming it myself in advance. I've mentioned Sarah Ahmed, I've mentioned Anne Svetkovich. The other two names that I would give, one is critical and was was critical to this, and it was Katrina Javorsky, who has written beautifully on suicide. And her book, The Gender of Suicide, was a real, I had that in my mind as I was thinking about the kind of work I wanted to do in relation to to this. So her work, which is itself also very beautifully written, was one real inspiration and influence on the book. And the other person is Denise Riley. And it was when I was kind of really not sure how to do that personal. And I read her book, Time Lived Without Its Flow, which is a beautiful little thing on grief and absolutely stunning writing. And she's a poet and, you know, she she comes from a very different place from me to all of this. When you read her more critical writing, she's interested in the impersonal personal. And there was something in her work you know, was that moment that you get where something clicks and you think, oh, I can see a way I can go forward with this. And I still don't know what it's called and I still don't know what it is and what it will be. But actually, there's something in this that enables me to think about a way of doing the personal that is somehow impersonal. And all of the things I was saying earlier about it being a kind of vehicle through which other people could think as well as me and could bring their experience to what I was saying. The writers and I, first off, your work was very moving for me, very much as a point of view of coming from an individual psychiatrist in clinical practice. So much of my work is an, an emphasis on the preventative on working with each person individually. It never becomes reductive, but there is sort of a checklist or a comprehensive kind of looking at risk factors and then resources, what you can do. So your book, that lovely kind of opening up and exploration of these other factors, these other questions uh, temporally, that, that was the aspect that I love most about your book, like looking at temporal aspects and so how the narrative is not linear about suicide, but actually is a much more or open orientation. To the point, to the reader's point too, I think the writers that I felt inspired by that your writing remind me of are Maggie Nelson and the Argonauts yes. and Rachel Cusk and her work about that. I know Rachel Cusk, both of them are sort of memoiristic and sort of overlap with the fictive elements, but are perhaps residing in the critical plus the memoir personal aspects. And your work very much resided there with me, for me personally. Yeah. And I think just as a general point, I think the creative critical is such a whoever you're looking at is such a, an interesting field at the moment. You know, I know Stuart Murray is just about to publish his book on medical humanities and disability, and he's also brought some personal into that writing and was, you know, talking the other day about the ways in which it allows for doubt and ambivalence in a way that academic writing doesn't. And so I think there's something very interesting moving forward for the medical humanities about its intersection with those kinds of writing and forms 
that, that will be a very interesting question, I think. What does medical humanities writing look like? Something quite brave about the way that, that you do this. Um, I, was, I was interested, you've used words already like courage and catharsis, and, and, and those strike home. In modern society, it, there's a kind of primacy to personal experience that becomes relatively difficult to critique because, you know, why would you critique somebody's personal experience and view of their world? Because when you frame personal experience as an academic exercise in which you're applying theory and knowledge, you almost invite or create an opportunity for people to critique personal experience, which I think is is quite a, an interesting and, and brave thing to do. And I would hope that, that the responses would be respectful of that whilst also engaging. I, I, I don't know if you've had any feelings along those lines. You think about it. <laughs> You worry about it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I think there's also an equal worry that bringing the personal in somehow I'm I'm trained to critique. And, you know, I wouldn't want to think that people would come to this book and because it's got that personal element wouldn't would feel disabled from critiquing it. You know, and so it's sort of it's a double edged thing, isn't it? You know, I hope that the way that I've situated the personal does enable people to feel that they can kind of read it critically because that's how fields move forward through debate. It's supposed to start debate, not to kind of shut it down. Jen, just moving on a bit, tell us a bit about teaching doctors to write and creativity as a form of catharsis. What sort of creativity do you see when in your physician in the Pegasus writing programme? How, What's writing doing there in, in, in the world of the, of the clinician? It's been very moving to see this kind of personal testimony of individuals who are finding ways to express their personal through writing, either through, I've seen sort of um, a medical oncologist who was dealing with their own kind of intergenerational thoughts about being, he was Italian-American, he had come from a, a mafia family, and they had sort of escaped that by coming to America. And he was working through these issues as he was uh, taking care of a migrant worker who had uh, generations before him had been migrant workers, who was dealing with cancer and those aspects, and him kind of aligning those side by side. So it was very powerful and very resonant to see him reflecting his own personal journey and his family's journey along side by side with the act of caring for another who was facing their mortality. That's just one sort of example of sort of seeing that kind of creativity flourish. I think that's where we've been very excited at Pegasus is to say, well, how would you approach creativity as a physician, my hope is always to expand that beyond to, to encompass all sort of health, health providers. And we know, as Anne had been saying, that creativity can come through research. It can come through direct patient care. It can come through incorporating medical humanities towards patients' care. You, Ian and Dieter, you've had amazing guests on this podcast that represent that. For me, the excitement lies in the area of how do you access these points as a uh, medical learner, or as a physician who wants to incorporate this in? We've looked at it a little bit. And we've sent out some surveys to kind of correlate sort of what are the different categories that people approach this. And I think the common ones that we've looked at through an informal survey also of different institutions across the U.S. mainly is that they can be entering it in from a well-being aspect, reflective exercises and being part of a community that has an affinity towards writing. Or they can come into it looking, saying that they want to sort of create publications for public discourse, either opinion editorials or as 
Ian yourself had sort of commented on when we were talking about this, uh, looking at it from a social justice lens, like what can we be doing to add to and improve sort of the medical structure as we know it? Other ways that physicians can come into this creativity is through education, like as you had mentioned, Rita Sharon earlier in narrative medicine practices, creating the next generation of medical professionals. Other ways that people can come into it are just the essence of learning these communication skills, like through drama, enhancing their own sort of interpersonal skills, their ability for spontaneity and mindfulness in the moment, uh, in verbal and in written communication. These are just sort of the different areas that I think I've seen writers come into uh, their own and physicians and medical learners incorporate this uh, side by side into their careers. I've seen a lot more interest from younger medical learners, especially wanting to be the next Atul Gawande or wanting to be the next Abraham Verghese or Daniel Mason, where, where whether it's fictive or nonfiction, whether it's narrative nonfiction, or whether it's through uh, research and, and the critical. So it's been a joy to kind of witness that and shepherd that into being. How would you teach somebody to start the creative writing process to merge the creative and the academic? Gosh, I don't know. I haven't done it. <laughs> I mean, going from my own experience of doing it, I think you just have to learn through the doing. You know, I had to write the book that didn't work in order to, to realise what I wasn't doing and then work from there to get to what is it that I am doing then? If I'm going from my own process, then I think it would be just kind of doing it and seeing what feels right. Once I had it, it was a quick write. It just sort of came out <laughs> and it was locked down. So there was nowhere else to go and nothing else to do. But, um, you know, I sat in my study and it was written pretty quickly, but it had to have the false start and it had to have quite a lot of experimentation before I got to that point where I knew this is it this is how it's working for me that's the other thing that's what worked for me in terms of bringing these things together but it won't work at all for other people so I think it would be about experimenting if you were interested in doing that to think about what is the way that works in terms of what I want to say but also how I write and what I do you know so for some people you know that kind of writing creative sections then critical sections works brilliantly you know and there's fantastic examples of that I think because I think so much anyway through theoretical ideas and concepts that actually just finding a way to almost use them and harness them open them up to a creative kind of language was the thing that worked for me but I think it would be about kind of experimenting with form and with voice and getting it wrong and going, yeah, that isn't it. You know, I'm going to have a break from it. I'm going to step back and actually I'm going to read. It was between writing that first book. Then I came across the Denise Riley. And then I think something clicked that enabled me to go into and come back to it and say, okay, there's something there that can enable me to go into the second one. So I think it is about doing that reading. And the question before was someone who'd obviously read a lot of auto theory and, you know, looking at this person and that person. And I think it's sort of which of those really speaks to you and what is it in it that speaks to you 
And what might you then develop from that that isn't the same as that? But, you know, what is it that you like in that? So in Denise Riley, there was something there, even though it's very different to what I did, that was about a way of the personal and the impersonal. And what's the relation between those two things that then enabled me to move forward with it? Do you still write poetry, Jen? I, I'm asked just because um, Margarita Sayona put in our comments. Um, we we had the privilege of speaking to her on a previous podcast and sharing her experience of being a transplant recipient through her very moving poetry as part of her academic and personal understanding of, of her experience. I'm putting words in your mouth, Margarita, I apologise. But she said that she felt very identified by the way and you described the process of trying to do these things and felt also writing parallel books to find the right register poetry memoir essay the sense of what it is you're doing uh, Jen do you still write poetry to make sense of your world I, I do not and I'm smiling because I think <laughs> I need to leave poetry to the poets <laughs> <laughs> I do think that ties in nicely to what uh, reflecting off of Anne's thought about finding experimentation and finding the right genre and knowing from a psychological perspective that sometimes we may not have the awareness or the full insight, what we love about the world and what we read may not be the genre that one would write. I think a lot, I see a lot of writers come in saying that they want to write a short story, for instance, but their writing goes for maybe a hundred pages and so. And then I would gently say, have you thought about a novella or have you thought about sort of a novel? It feels like perhaps the containing the conciseness in a short story vehicle may not be the voice or may not resonate with your soul in particular, or may do so. It might take some time to sort of cultivate that. Being open to different genres or very, very surprising, as Anne had alluded to, sort of surprising ways that your creativity can manifest, I think has been a joy to see in others and hopefully finding your way. I know that I, for instance, I love reading Anne's book. It was, it was just very meaningful to me, but I know that that's not the way that I potentially creatively for myself and would be able to access the world. But it's something that I can be inspired about and model certain aspects of my craft and unfold it perhaps in the sort of long form fiction process, but in ways that are interpreted through our, each of our own individual creative energies. We had another, I think, lovely question, I think, about writing and time. And does it take time to tackle certain subjects? And for example, with your book, and but maybe also, Jen, in your experience with doctors who write, I imagine as a physician, you might encounter really traumatic events on a, on a daily basis. And you know, does it take time to tackle certain topics? And how does one start a writing project like that is, is a question that, that we received. Yes, I think that question of time is a really important one. And, you know, there's a lot in the book on time. Yeah, and it would have been a very different book had it been closer in time to what happened. I don't think I could have written it closer in time. So it's taken me, you know, this time to be able to to come to writing it. And I think also just in terms of how then do you get going? How do you do this thing? I think in both cases, both the ghost book and then the book, it was about getting a thing out literally on the desk with me. That was my sister's. The first book, she was trained as a botanical illustrator. So I have all of these beautiful watercolour paintings that she did. And so the book sort of was working with those. You know, I sort of had the paintings in front of me and was using them as a sort of way of getting going. And then 
the second book, if you like, actually begins with my sister's watch. And so you have the photograph. But literally, I started writing that book. I started writing again by getting the watch out, putting it on the desk, which is the photograph you have. And actually just going, okay, I'm just going to write. I'm just going to write about this watch. And then that became a whole thing about time, you know, and a whole reflection that went into the critical on time. But actually, as a way of getting going, it was literally what you see. And that was very little editing through of that writing that you have in in chapter one. It was just me. Okay, this is the watch. Let me look at the watch. Let me think about this watch and what it means and why it's been in a box for 20 years and what it means to get out the box. And that was how I got going on the writing. It's as simple as what you see in front of you. My thought when I heard the question initially, which was lovely, is someone like Ishiguru, who I think takes a lifetime to meditate on memory or time, that it may not be contained in one book, but it may be contained in a, in a lifetime of books or may not even be contained in that manner. Yes. And I think that for sometimes I think it's very, very evident, sort of the themes and motifs that sort of are captured by an individual and in their contemplation over the arc of their career. And I think other times it may not be so clear. Like if I look back on where I am at, I may very, I think I'm a nascent emerging writer in some respects. Like I know that I enjoy sort of the mythological aspects and how that can be personalized in some way to have very personal and contemporary meanings. But I also know that I am interested in sort of work to help support the psychological journey of a writer. And in the writing world, in the craft world, there are many individuals who like sort of camp modeling off of Campbell's work about the heroic journey. But for me, I was thinking of how do you overlay that onto a writer's journey? Like I think very much so a writer's own journey can be a hero's journey itself. So then I said, oh, this is something completely different. But I realized, oh, there's that connection again, that kind of essential mythology that's present in all my works, whether it's fiction or whatever nonfiction. And so I think sometimes with time and evolution, these things become more clarified. Yeah. And I think in a way that's right. You know, throughout my career, I've worked on trauma, I've worked on memory, worked on on these kinds of questions. And so, you know, it's a making explicit of a thing or a surfacing of a thing or a looking directly at a thing, but the thing itself in one way or another, perhaps also in, in the kinds of writers that, you know, I've written on including Ishiguru, you know, it's sort of it's it's sort of embedded in there, I guess, that one is reflecting more or less on, you know, those kind of themes that these things bring up. And I think one of the nice things about writing the book was actually it felt as if it was bringing together all of the different phases of, you know, it was sort of reaching through the medical humanities back to the trauma memory work, revisiting that you know, re resituating it in some ways, looking at it from the perspective that I have now. Yeah, so it kind of felt like it was sort of a bringing together of things as well. One is interested in certain themes and ideas, right? And then they play through in different registers and different voices. And for you, uh, we had talked about sort of the emphasis on how the personal has influenced the critical, but vice versa for you, do you feel like, are there aspects of how you're going to open or deepen up sort of the personal or the creative writing now that you've had, you've created this project? <laughs> yes. So taking it in a different direction, actually, and we were just before the call, we were sort of saying that one of the things that we're both involved with at the moment is co-creating projects. And so the project that I've just been involved with is working with the neonatal intensive care unit at the Royal Victoria Infirmary, which is just across the road from where I work in Newcastle. Colleagues in medicine and an artist, Kay Sweeney, 
And so we've been working with parents who have lost a baby from a multiple pregnancy, so one of twins, just which is, again, a very complicated form of grief, a form of grief, you know, that often isn't recognised or talked about and people don't know what to do with it. And so working with the parents, we made a short film and that was, again, thinking about the role of place in grief. And so they went on memory walks and the artist Kate Sweeney, her practice is to make inks from natural materials. And so she made these inks and then the parents drew and wrote with these inks. And then the film is sort of incorporating all of these, the walks and the the parents' responses and reflections. And then these drawings that were made with the the inks from these places that that were very meaningful to them. We've just kind of uh, finished the film and and that'll be releasing that soon. and, And also just trying to get it to other parents, you know, to help them as a, as a resource. But I think moving on from that, I think what I'm really interested in thinking through, actually, is if I'm working with other people's experiences of grief and loss and doing this kind of co-creation work, then what is the form by which, you know, you then can think through and with people about their experiences what is their sense making? What is your role in relation to their sense making? You know, what forms can you then use and what voices can you then use to get that sense of? It's not a collective because the experiences are different within a group, but nevertheless, there's some there's a common experience that you're trying to to register. So so that's all a bit inarticulate, but I think there's something there, a question around co-creation and methodologies and actually how you get that voice that is not your own experience, but is trying to register other people's experiences of a thing, in my case, of a a complicated form of grief. But how do you combine creative and critical, I suppose, in relation to other people's experiences in a sensitive way, in a reflective way? So moving on from my own personal experience to thinking about how do I work with others? Yeah, to articulate their experiences. I worked with a young medical student, uh, now Dr. Julia Goddard, and uh, she undertook some extensive narrative analysis of people with a severe uh, medical illness. And because she was good at creative writing, she then retold their stories in short mini stories of creative writing to summarise the heart of the narrative and then worked on them as co-creation with the people themselves so that they that their stories were retold together and refined together. And it transpired to be both an incredibly powerful way of summarising individual experience in a very creative way that was both moving and told a story and also could e- even be used in medical education to communicate key aspects of a patient's journey and somebody's journey through illness. Although we also, she also told the stories of the care professionals as well and they contributed narratives and had short stories inspired by them and and it's left a long legacy with many of us as we as we often you know we used to use mini narratives as a way of introducing a clinical topic of education because you have a unique and individual voice i think it's about those creative methodologies isn't it and how do we respectfully and meaningfully you know do this kind of work we probably just have a very small moment left to maybe hear about your hopes for the future, because that's something that we like we like to end on. Is there anything you're kind of still looking forward to or hoping to to achieve or something for the field? Yes, I guess on the personal level, continuing to refine my 
writing journey, being inspired by work such as in the courage that Anne has um, shown uh, in combining that personal with the critical. So I'm hoping to continue to find ways to do that, that it would be meaningful uh, for readers. And then on a sort of global field level, my hope is at some point that the array of creativity that one can enter into can be side by side with both patient care as sort of an option of treatment holistically, right? I know that there are strong inroads in that with integrative health, but seeing sort of expressive sort of art, being able to be part of that would be wonderful. And then on the provider level, knowing that throughout medical education, whether it's at the postgraduate level, at the sort of the scholarly mid-career level, that medical humanities and the options are readily available for those to partake in and that they are encouraged to be a part of their career development. So that would be a lovely thing to witness. And I know there's strong strides in so many institutions, but being able to see that on a universal basis would be wonderful. Okay, so on a personal level, the kind of the project that I want to take forward is the the work that I've been doing with the neonatal unit. And I think there, what we're really hoping to do, there's quite a bit of work done on parental responses to losing a twin at or around birth, but there's a lot less done on the sibling response. I'm interested in working with the team I'm working with to to do that co-creation with twins and siblings and just think about what that experience is for them, where you've lost a sibling, you know, it is at or around birth. And what does that mean? What is memory there? And how do you make sense of that? And what kind of stories do you tell about it? And how is it remembered within the family? And so that's the kind of my immediate next focus and interest and set of questions um, in terms of my research. In terms of the field, I, I think there's a sort of, there's quite a lot of emphasis on, you know, who gets to speak and recovering narratives and, and, and sort of thinking about this question of speaking. And so I would be quite interested in the question of how do we know that someone has heard and what does that look like and what does it mean to hear and what does it mean to work with silence as well. And so in terms of the personal, that kind of where I didn't include things, that wasn't about a defensiveness and it wasn't about, it was about a kind of opening for space for others' experience to be able to fill that gap and to be able to be included and trying to write in a form that would enable that, which meant actually being reserved in certain ways about my own experience and the personal. And so actually just thinking about what does silence enable and what does not speaking allow for, as well as thinking about speaking. And as I say, thinking about that question of how do we know when someone is heard? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. Thank you so much for a really great conversation. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for everybody who's listened and who'll be listening on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. That was episode three of season five. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, Dieter and Ian will be joined by Dr. Gavin Miller from University of Glasgow and Dr. Anna McFarlane from University of Leeds. Ian and Dieter will talk with Gavin and Anna about their work on science fiction and in particular, what science fiction has to offer the medical humanities and how it might shape our understanding of the future of healthcare. To stay up to date with the latest news about our live events and about the podcast, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ConvoArtsHealth. This episode of Conversations About Arts, Humanities and Health was produced by me, David Brown. Until next time.